As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Conscious Shift with Julianne Turner brings insights from leading voices and visionaries across the globe to guide and inspire you to create your own conscious shift into your true power and singular greatness. Through her expertise, author, speaker, and social innovator, Julianne Turner, a world authority on the creative process, guides you to discover how to consciously create the life, work, and world you most desire. And now, here's your Conscious Shift host, Julianne Turner. Hello, everyone. This is Julianne Turner welcoming, welcoming you to Conscious Shift. And we are so glad that you are joining us today, all of you Conscious Shifters from all across the globe. And if you're new to the show, I want to remind you that I have a gift for you, a really wonderful gift that will guide you to making your own Conscious Shift and tapping into your unique genius in the world. It's actually a genius guide and audio that I developed uh, from an interview that I did with Seth Godin, one of the foremost visionaries on the planet today. And so if you go to ConsciousShiftShow.com, you can pick up that free gift. Uh, if you are on your mobile phone, you can also pick up that free gift just by texting. All you need to do is text the word SHIFT plus the number one, shift one, to the number 44222 on your text, on your phone, and you'll get the gift that way. So uh, really welcoming you all here today, and we have a really profound and powerful message for you today about timing. <laughs> have you ever felt like you've had either bad timing Or good timing? Well, our guest today actually has discovered that timing is even more important than we've ever imagined. And that timing has a great effect on our lives, on just about everything, from how we spend our days and the best times to, to have a job performance review to, you know, when's the best time of day for you to do your best work. And so we're going to delve deeply into that with one of my favorite 
visionaries and authors of all time, Daniel Pink, who is the author of many great books that we've shared here, uh, Drive, uh, To Sell as Human, and uh, one of my very favorites is uh, A Whole New Mind. Dan, it's great to have you back here on Conscious Shift. Julianne, it's good to be back. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. I was so, so excited to see your new book, All About Timing. It's called When, W-H-E-N, When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. And we all would like to have perfect timing, wouldn't we? <laughs> uh, we would. And, and actually, there's a lot of research out there to help us make better timing decisions all across many, many domains from economics to social psychology to cognitive science to endocrinology. There's a raft of research uh, and that if you go wide enough and deep enough into it, you can begin to piece together the evidence-based ways to make more systematically smarter, shrewder when decisions in our life. And what you're talking about, Dan, is really important because as you uh, mentioned in the book, we often think that, you know, we kind of have this perception that timing is kind of an art and it's not really something that we can use uh, strategically, but it's actually a science. And everything that you just mentioned is a science, you know, economics, psychology, you know, all of those things. And so now you have brought together some real clues and guidelines for us and how to make our timing more effective. And so um, one of the most powerful pieces that I would love for us to start with is that you really have identified and helped us tune into some hidden patterns in our days. And, and there's a pattern uh, for each of us, and it, and it, and it varies by uh, who we are, but there's a hidden pattern in our day. Um, can you explain more about what that pattern is and how each one of us has our own little kind of timing type or chronotype. Sure, sure. So, so what we know, okay, so that's a great way to start, Julianne. So what we know is that uh, all, we, each individual does have uh, a particular chronotype. That's just a fancy way of saying what's our, uh, are we morning people or evening people? What's our propensity? Is there, is there, are we more likely to go to sleep early in the morning, wake up early at night? I'm sorry, are we likely to go to sleep early in the morning and then go to sleep early at night, or are we more likely to go to sleep later and wake up later? At first group, morning people, we like to call them larks. Second group, uh, evening people, we like to call them owls. The truth of the matter is that most of us are somewhere in the middle. And if you, if you look at the distribution of chronotypes, what you see is you have about 15% of people are strong larks, 20% are strong night owls, and most of us are what I call third birds are, are in the middle. That's the first step in figuring out how to use these hidden patterns of the day. Uh, the second step is this. Uh, what we know is that we typically move through the day in three stages. There is a peak, a trough, and a rebound. Now, larks and third birds typically move through it in that order, peak, trough, rebound. Uh, and uh, owls typically go the other direction. What we know is the peak, which, again, for most of us is the morning, is that that's when we are very good at analytic work, heads-down work. We're locked in, focused, eliminating distractions. During the trough, which is the early afternoon, we're not good at it very much at all. You're better off doing your administrative work then. And then in the recovery period, which for most of us is the late afternoon and early evening, we're better off doing creative work. And the reason for that is that our mood is better than during the trough, 
but we're less but we're less vigilant during during the peak, so we let in some new ideas. And so simply that small step, right? Figure out your time, figure out your type, lark or owl or third bird. Figure out what kind of task you're doing. Is it analytic, administrative, or uh, creative? And you can make a few small changes to your schedule, and you can optimize your productivity and your creativity. Now, again, this is not a magic bullet of any kind, but what the research shows is that time of day explains about 20% of the variance in how people perform on workplace tasks. So it's a, it's a pretty big deal. Yeah, it's really significant. I was really uh, remarkable, you know, remarkably surprised by that 20% variance. And, and Dan, actually, from reading all the research you did around those hidden patterns, it seems like maybe 20% in variance uh, in performance might be on the low end. I just got a sense of yeah, that. Yeah, I don't did know. You? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, you know what? It's hard to say. That's 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 a great question. I'm not sure. You know, locking it down with that specificity, but. The, what we know without any doubt is that it makes a big difference in our performance. And, 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 this is, and that's actually the key of the book is that a lot of times, Julianne, we're, we're, you know, we're intentional about, especially on the job, what do we do? How do we do it? Who do we do it with? But we give these questions of when we do stuff, the short end of the stick, and it really, really matters. Yeah, it does. And to think that just by making a few adjustments uh, to align your your performance and your tasks to the best timing for you, you could have a 20% plus boost in performance. That's pretty profound. And um, it seems to me too, Dan, that you're actually going to enjoy your day <laughs> a little bit better because you're you're really kind of moving with your natural rhythms, right? Uh, you're exactly right about that. That's a big part of it, Julian. It's not only about performance. It's also about mood. And our mood actually changes over the course of the day as well. And there's some really intriguing research uh, 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 on this. And, and so, you know, our mood affects our performance. Our performance affects our mood. And so getting it right, what social psychologists call the synchrony effect, is really the, um, is really the key. And Dan, do you, uh, as you were doing this research, did you uh, find any parallels with the idea of creative flow? Um, oh, in interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Did you did you tune into any of that? In other words, can following these rhythms help us maybe like <laughs> move into flow more easily? Um, that's actually a really great question, and, and I think the answer is, uh, uh, in one dimension, I think the answer is yes. In another dimension, I know the answer is yes. So um, in the first part, uh, uh, one of the things that, the, uh, that, that uh, having, getting that synchrony effect helps us do is, is simply doing the right work at the right time is enables us to enter that flow state exactly as you're saying so that feeling that we sometimes have when we're locked in locked down uh, time is melting away um, that's more likely to happen when we're operating at our optimal time for a task so that's that's the one so i i think that's generally right what the what some other research shows is in another domain is the importance of breaks and uh, we have so woefully, woefully undervalued breaks. And one of the things that the research on breaks shows, 
uh, even the research on lunch, is that having breaks makes us more likely to find those moments of flow um, uh, uh, more easily than not. Yeah, I loved what you said about breaks. Now, you and I know, Dan, because we both kind of have worked for years in, in the areas of creativity, is that it's it's been understood for you know some time that breaks are really essential to creativity, not just a nice to have. <laughs> and yet in business and as you pointed out, even in school, uh, breaks are being diminished, not valued. And so our yeah. right our the way that we're actually structuring the places where we need to be most most you know innovative <laughs> in our businesses and schools, um, we need to have this awareness that breaks are absolutely essential. You're you're exactly right. I'm not sure how much the awareness. I mean, your listeners, Julianne, certainly have that awareness, but the uh, the mass of men and women uh, out there in the world, I don't think really realize that. And and this is actually to me some of the most interesting research that I uncovered. Um, we we really do. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm your hallelujah chorus on, uh, on this one. What we really need to do is look at breaks differently. I think a lot of times in our and I, and I say this as as someone who fell down this rabbit hole myself. Um, like I didn't, you know, typically take very many breaks in the course of a of a work day, but um, I, I thought it was better to power through. I always looked at breaks as kind of a deviation from performance rather right. than part of performance, and and that's what it is. It's part of performance, um, and so we need to be much more systematic about taking breaks, and we also know a lot more about what kinds of breaks to take. Uh, we know that social breaks are more effective than solo breaks. We know that breaks where you move are more effective than breaks where you're not moving. We know that um, uh, we know that um, uh, breaks where you're in nature are more restorative than those that are not. And so we can get a lot better about taking breaks and, and using them, as you say, Julie, uh, to improve. They definitely definitely improve creativity. There's some good research out of Stanford. Uh, showing that taking walks uh, uh, is a great way to boost one's level of productivity. There's also other research just more broadly showing that it helps our emotional well-being, it improves our productivity, it reduces exhaustion, um, some really, really beneficial breaks, and there are some beneficial effects of breaks. And the bang for the buck is terrific. You don't have to have you know, a massively long break to get some of the restorative benefits. Yes, and I... I was with you, uh, Dan, and, and have been for years in terms of um, the many detrimental effects of schools eliminating recess, right? Because not only are we not, our kids not moving at a time when we're seeing uh, obesity, you know, skyrocket in our children, but also your research shows that eliminating research has um you know, measurably negative effect on test scores, on student learning. And at the same time, you know, 40% of schools have eliminated recess. Yeah, no, it's really, again, it's, it's the same. It's, it's basically the junior version of what we were talking about before is that educators, not actually educators know this. I think policymakers don't necessarily that, that recess is not, it's part of a kid's learning. It's not a deviation from it. And there's some very intriguing early results showing um, in, in some school districts in Texas, actually serving generally low-income kids, that 
giving kids, and it's, and it's counterintuitive, that giving kids more recess is actually an effective way to boost their test scores. If we're concerned about test scores, what happens typically is that, oh, we got to eliminate test, we eliminate recess in order to get these test scores up, when in fact adding those recesses is a, is a way to give kids that restoration, let kids blow off steam, uh, let the, allow them to replenish in a, in a very effective way. Um, there's some interesting research out of Denmark showing that it's alarming at one, one level that kids who take standardized tests in the afternoon typically score lower than kids who take them in the morning. But a remedy for that is giving those afternoon test takers a 20 or 30 minute break immediately before taking the test. That, that takes their scores back up. Wow. And one of the things that you pointed out too, we've always known it, Dan, right? It's like everybody talks about that, that, the after lunch slump, you know, the, the afternoon slump, but you actually found like there's more to it than we even thought, <laughs> right? Afternoons are, yeah. are <laughs> like a dangerous yeah, time. Well, I- they are. It's not. I mean, afternoon slump sounds kind of benign, but this is what what the what some of the data show are far are are hardly benign at all. So if you look at even like medical errors, you're three times you're four times more likely to have an anesthesia error for a procedure that begins at 3 p.m. rather than at 9 a.m. Oh uh, if you take uh, if you if you go to uh, get a colonoscopy, uh, you uh, in the afternoon doctors find in the same population half as many polyps. Uh, if you um, uh, uh, nurses in hospitals, a uh, dramatic decline in hand washing in the afternoon, uh, and so there's some so that so that that trough is it can be dangerous. There is a remedy, um, not a perfect remedy, but again, this is where breaks come in. Breaks can alleviate a big part of that. Yeah, yeah the the uh, severity of the uh, afternoon impact without a break. Yeah. <laughs> you call. Afternoons, the Bermuda Triangle <laughs> of our days. They're, they're, and... They are, but I mean, I, I wish, yeah, I mean, I wish, I, I wish that weren't true, but they really are. It's where a lot of good intentions sail into and never return. Yeah, um, you give some great examples in your book, when uh, Daniel, about you know, even the opening example about the Lusitania, you know, and some some decisions that the captain made. Uh, in 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 some really bad decisions, and you said maybe it was the afternoon when he made those because uh, they were very tragic uh, decisions. And so we really need to be tuned into first of all the the rhythms of the day and the rhythms unique to ourselves, right? Our, our whether we're a lark, a morning person, an owl, a night owl or kind of the, the, the third bird, the middle of the day kind of person. There's more of us. We really mm-hmm. want to be aware of these things because it can make a huge difference. One of the examples that you gave also struck me is that um, taking a standardized test in the afternoon can be equivalent to students missing two weeks of school. Now, that's dramatic. Uh, it's true. This is this is some... Um, um, this is research out of Denmark, very interesting research led by uh, Francesca Gino at, at Harvard that looked at uh, 2 million Danish standardized test scores. And what happened here, I don't know, maybe your listeners will be interested in this, um, is that in Denmark, students take this, take standardized tests. But unlike here, they take them on computer, or most schools here, they take them on computers rather than pencil and paper, you know, those little bubble forms and number two pencils. They take them on computers. However, a typical Danish school has more students than computers. 
So as a consequence, students are randomly assigned to take the test at certain times of day. And exactly as you say, Julianne, lo and behold, those afternoon test takers uh, didn't do very well. It was, as you say, it was, it was like missing two weeks of school. Um, and, and I think what, what should alarm us about that is, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, is that when we think about something like the education of our kids, and it's something obviously that parents and policymakers and citizens of all kinds care very deeply about, we do think hard, what should our kids be learning? We do think hard, how should they be learning? What are the best pedagogical approaches? We do think hard, who is the best to teach them these things? But when it comes to the question of when, we say, ah, whatever. And it matters. <laughs> That's a, yes. you know, if there's any sort of uh, cry out in this book, it's like start taking these when questions seriously uh, because they have a deep, deep effect on many, many corners of our life, as you say, from healthcare to education to um, um, uh, criminal justice, uh, overall well-being, criminal justice, uh, healthcare, everything. Yeah, absolutely. Job performance. As you said, you know, organizations, you know, our, our corporations, our organizations, uh, it would make such a big difference if, you know, we were aware of these, these timing issues and the aware of the performance difference that taking breaks and yes, even taking naps. <laughs> uh, that would be that would be an amazing thing, wouldn't it? If, if if our organizations let us take naps, because what you found out is that naps are extreme, like they're turbo boosters. They improve reaction time, alertness. You know, uh, it just help us perform optimally. And um, so, who would imagine an organization that would actually have not only meditation rooms, Dan, but like nap rooms uh, there are a few i mean if you look at certain certain companies like you know technology companies usually uber uh headquarters has that zappos does and you know again um you know what, what i think what did, to me what was interesting about the nap research is is how short how how short naps actually play pay pay off big time um, that you don't need a massively long nap, that, that very brief naps, 10 to 20 minutes, really might be the ideal. Yeah, you call it, I loved it in, in your book, When, you call it the Nappuccino. <laughs> yeah, that's a certain, that's actually, I wish I'd come up with that. I'd heard that from some, I'd heard that elsewhere. Um, I, you know, I love, I love coining words, and, and I'd love to take credit for coining that one, but it, 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 that, that preceded me. The uh, but that's a particular kind of nap. It's the kind of nap that I take now, and it's it's very peculiar. Uh, what you do is uh, what I do is starts out, and this is the beginning is is a little bit weird. <laughs> take it the ideal the ideal nap is that you have a cup of coffee first. Uh, ah. I'll explain why in, I'll explain why in a moment. So you have a cup of coffee. Then what I do is I set my phone alarm. I have a countdown timer on my phone. I set it for 23 minutes. And what I do is I sit in a chair. I have a comfortable chair in my office with a little, like, footstool. And I will put on my headphones. I have big uh, – I have, like, wraparound headphones, not earbuds, but, like, real old-fashioned headphones. Put up, I'm talking to you on them right now, as a matter of fact. I cool. have uh, big uh, – I have big headphones, and I put those on. Uh, I sometimes will put on, like, uh, like an eye mask to, to black out the light. Not always. Um, and I will just plug in my – you know, put those headphones on, lie back in the chair, set the alarm for the countdown for 23 minutes, and then try to go to sleep. Now, what I found is that the first couple of times you do this, it's harder to fall asleep. 
But uh, you mentioned meditation. It's sort of like meditation. You get better at it as time goes on. And so now I typically, in the, especially in that afternoon lull, can fall asleep in like seven, eight minutes. So that gives me, what does that give me, 15, 16 minutes of an actual nap. That's really in the sweet spot between 10 and 20. Uh, and then the, the alarm goes off at 23 minutes, you know, and I wake up. But here's the bonus. Uh, it takes about 25 minutes for caffeine to get into our bloodstream. So the moment I'm waking <laughs> up fully refreshed from that nap, I'm getting a second kick from the caffeine. That's the ideal nap, as you say, Julie. It's a nappuccino. Oh, my gosh. That's optimal. <laughs> I love it. Now, that is perfect timing, if we've ever heard it. So Indeed. Yes, uh, indeed. Absolutely. And I've just got to say, Dan, you know, one of the there are so many things I love about your books because they help us think differently. Uh, you know, I, I have to say, you know, a whole new a whole new mind is uh, one of the most I think one of the most significant books of our time uh, because it really right because it, it really talks about the importance of uh, balancing our right brain and our left brain. And of course, we know that that's when we say right brain and left brain, that's just a, a useful um, reference, you know, way that we reference. Right, different, right, right. Different, Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just different cap- capabilities of our brains, but it's, it is useful. And so we've given so much focus and we reward a uh, left brain in our, in our schools and our, in our uh, education system and in our uh, Western business world. And yet what we're seeing, as you pointed out uh, long ago in that book was um, the rise of the importance of our right brain, our creativity, our innovation is the most valuable. And it's really what uh, we're looking at today in a globally networked world that enables not only uh, innovation uh, in that sense, but it basically creates more pie <laughs> instead of just further subdividing, you know, the pie that already exists. And so, totally right. so it is extremely important that we learn to to use every ass, asset that we can and every bit of knowledge that we can to enhance and encourage our creativity. And so this book about timing has so much to say about optimizing our creativity and our performance at every level. And, and really, there's nowhere where we don't want to improve our performance, I think. Nobody would say, no, I think I'd and like to perform less. <laughs> but, also, but also, but again, as you said, Julianne, it's, it's not only our performance, it's our overall sense of well-being. I mean, you know, we are here, you know, human beings. Yes, we have to, we, we, we want to do well at work. We want to contribute to the world. But we also want to have a sense of meaning. We want to have a sense of broader health and, and well-being. And timing matters on that significantly. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we are going to take just a very short break, Dan, and then we're going to come back. I've got uh, some really cool questions for you about beginnings, midpoints, and endings. <laughs> Sound good? Okay. Sounds great. All right. Sounds great. This is Julianne Turner. We will be right back with Dan Pink on Conscious Shift.
you love the voices and visionaries shared here on Conscious Shift with Julianne Turner, from spiritual guides like Marianne Williamson, Barbara Marks Hubbard, and Don Miguel Ruiz, to creative sparks like Julia Cameron of The Artist Way, and inspiring business gurus like Seth Godin and Daniel Pink. Then you'll love being able to grasp their wise guidance and apply their step-by-step wisdom to the new Conscious Shift Notes Action Guide series, a version of Cliff Notes for each Conscious Shift show. With Conscious Shift Notes, they not only give you the engaging full audio interviews from each Conscious Shift visionary and the full written transcript, but now they've also taken each Conscious Shift show interview and distilled it down to its essential essence. So you get each Conscious Shift show summarized on just a few colorful visual pages with bullet points, highlights, and key quotes. So you can grasp the key points at one glance. Want to know the best news? Conscious Shift host Julianne Turner wants you to experience the inspiration of their new Conscious Shift notes absolutely free for a limited time. With her free gift of their first Conscious Shift Notes, Action Guide, and Audio Series with Seth Godin, go to ConsciousShiftShow.com to receive your free gift now. In your free gift, Conscious Shift Notes said, multiple New York Times bestselling author and creative visionary Seth Godin shares in detail exactly how you can discover and profit from your own unique genius and start doing what really matters to you and to the world. Your first step is to go to ConsciousShiftShow.com right now to receive your free Conscious Shift Notes, Action Guide, and Audio, along with their Conscious Shift Show updates from their growing global community of fellow visionaries. Most important, you'll also get to see how you can access all their Conscious Shift Show wisdom in their brand new Conscious Shift Notes collections around transformational topics they've shared, like prosperity, life purpose, creativity at work, transformational leadership, and many more. In fact, their first Conscious Shift Show Notes collection on prosperity is available now and includes Marianne Williamson on Love Divine Compensation, Julia Cameron on A Prosperous Heart, Dan Pink on To Sell as Human, and Adam Grant on Give and Take, How True Leadership Starts with a Giving Mindset, and much more. Go to ConsciousShiftShow.com right now to claim your Conscious Shift Notes, Action Guide, and Audios to guide you step-by-step to make your own Conscious Shift into your true greatness today. Welcome back, everyone. This is Julianne Turner. You are listening to Conscious Shift, and you are here in perfect timing, listening to our conversation with Daniel Pink, the best-selling author of the new book, When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. And we've been having a fascinating conversation, the first part of the show, about how much when the timing of things actually affects everything uh, in in our own lives, uh, but everything from education to criminal justice to job performance to team success, timing matters. And Dan, just before the break, we were going to touch on uh, like beginnings, midpoints, and endings. You kind of mentioned that every day has a has a rhythm, has a pattern, kind of. Right. Uh, a, a rhythm, but but beginnings, midpoints, and and endings are also important. So if we could, let's just briefly touch on those. I know there's much more in your book, but 
one thing about beginnings that intrigued me was you're saying that there's something called the fresh start effect. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, this is some really interesting research. Uh, it's, 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 actually, it's actually one of the really um, one of the most well-known pieces of research in the broader science of timing. It was done at the uh, University of Pennsylvania by Katie Milkman, Jason Reese, and, and Heng Chen Dai. And what they found is that certain dates are in our lives in the year operate as, this is the term that they use, temporal landmarks. That is, they stand out from other dates. And these temporal landmarks have a peculiar effect on our behavior. One thing that they do is they get us to slow down in the way that a physical landmark would. But what they also do is trigger this really peculiar kind of mental accounting. So what we do is that we, like a business opens up a fresh ledger at a beginning of a quarter or beginning of a, of a year. Uh, we do that uh, for ourselves. So we say, this is sort of the power of New Year's resolutions. We say, okay, old me never went to the gym and ate fast food all the time, but new me, born anew on, July, on January 1, has a fresh ledger. We're going to make a fresh start. And uh, New Year's Day ends up being, you know, the most well-known fresh start date. But what, what Milkman, Reese, and, and Di have found is that other dates in our lives have that kind of effect. Um, so if we're thinking about making changes in our behavior, we're more likely to do it and more likely to succeed in if we, if we start the behavior on a Monday rather than a Thursday, if we do it on the first of the month rather than the 17th of the month, uh, if we do it uh, for college students, they, they did some research on, on college students and gym mem- and, and visiting the gym, uh, uh, the first day of the semester rather than the 33rd day of the semester. Yeah, even our birthdays, right, can be uh, – oh, sure. uh, Birthdays are – yeah, that's a, no, that's a that's a great point actually because not all temporal land like 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 you and I share the temporal landmark of of uh, of uh, January one. You and I share the temporal landmark of say a Monday, but each of us has personal temporal landmarks too. So you know, uh, if I start if I try to start something on the day after your birthday, it's not going to do a lot for me. But if you start <laughs> something on the day after your birthday, it's actually meaningful. The day after your, uh, you know, any any significant date like that. So, uh, so what this does is that again, it introduces this temporal aspect to our behavior and how we navigate our lives. And so, not all days of the year are created equal. And 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 being selective about when we begin uh, a change project uh, can can actually you know up our odds a little bit. Yeah, another way to leverage timing to our benefit. And one of the other things about kind of those rhythms that we're talking about, Dan, that I found really important is that there are natural dips, kind of like the day again. You know, just another day we kind of have a natural dip, but actually um, in a project. And I think we've all experienced that too, just like we – you know, like we've all experienced the afternoon slump. It's like in a project, it's like there is kind of a natural slump um, or a down midpoint. And we can choose what you're saying as the research shows, shows that we can choose whether that's a slump or whether that's a spark. Totally right. Yeah. So, so, mid, so you know, midpoints are, again, at least – Mid- midpoints are something that we're not really conscious of. They're, they're not really visible. But any enterprise that has a beginning and end, by its very nature, has a midpoint. And so you see this like in projects, for instance. You, know, you begin a project, a 
team project at work and it has a certain deadline, there's going to be a midpoint. And what some researchers have found is, is, is that that midpoint has a in, – in team projects has, has an interesting effect. That you, the, the traditional view of how teams progress through a project was that they moved in this steady, linear path from beginning to end. <laughs> if you look at how the teams actually work, and Connie Gersick, who did this research, you know, videotaped teams in action, audiotaped teams in action to find out what they were actually doing, uh, they found at the beginning of a project, teams didn't do very much at all. Uh, it was only, uh, there, but there was a certain moment in the project where they had a sudden burst of activity, where they um, they threw off old ways of doing things and they finally buckled down. And, and, and in a really eerie way, that was almost always at this midpoint. Um, so midpoints can have that effect. They can also, as you say, bring us down. You see other research about that. But at some level, if we're conscious of midpoints, uh, we can use them to wake up rather than roll over. And one of the good ways to help us create that spark is to imagine that we're a little bit behind. There's some good research from the National Basketball Association about halftime scores showing that teams that are be- that typically teams that are ahead at halftime are more likely to win the game. But the, ex- one ex- the exception to that is teams that are behind by one point are actually more likely to win the game. And, so, and there's other experimental evidence as well showing that feeling like you're slightly behind can be a big boost to your motivation at the midpoint. So how we think about midpoints makes a huge difference. To be aware of them, uh, to use them to wake up, as you said, rather than to roll over. And, you yeah. know, at, at the midpoint, kind of imagine <laughs> you're, you're just a little bit behind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and um, what's interesting about that feeling a little bit behind, if we unpack it a little bit, is that if you and, – and you see this in other kinds of – you know, that particular, the NBA research that I talked about, which was done by Jonah Berger at Penn and uh, Devin Pope at uh, the University of Chicago, um, that was just a massive analysis of data so that showed that correlation. Uh, there's other experimental research showing that feeling behind actually causes us to exert greater effort in the second half and of, of anything. And so because, you know, if we're behind, if we're really far behind, we, we tend to give up. If we're really far ahead, we can get complacent. But if we're a little bit behind, there's something about that that is motivation enhancing that allows us to kick harder during that second half of the race. Did you find anything related there, Dan, about uh, – it, it's related to this, about momentum? Like if somebody is uh, moving in a particular direction in terms of timing, um, was there any research that you turned up on that? That's a really good question, and, and I don't know of any research on that. Um, it wouldn't um, um, uh, it, it wouldn't surprise me. The closest thing to that that I that I know about is some research on um, on uh, this is from Teresa Mobile at Harvard Business School on the importance of progress as a motivator. Mm. Um, that, that, that making progress is inherently motivating, and it can trigger a kind of virtuous circle which is akin to your momentum point, which is that, you know, you make progress one day, uh, you feel good. And so because you feel good, you're more likely to make progress the next day, which makes you feel good, which makes it more likely to make progress, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think there is something to that. It's only Amabile's work on, on progress is the only thing that rings a bell there. Yeah, she's a great researcher. Um, and it just strikes me, you know, that there would be some interesting parallels with 
you know, the team that scores the touchdown just before <laughs> halftime or kicks that field goal just before halftime, it's, it's related to timing in a way, but it's also directional, right? You're moving in the right direction. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there's, I mean, I mean, there's, there's so much research on so many different things. There is NFL research out of the NFL, um, it, you know, in American football that, um, that show really it, it shows us a lot about the importance of endings and endings as a motivator. That there are that the, the minute if you divide an NFL game by 61 minute segments, uh, the most points by far it's not even close are scored in the minute before the first half ends. Um, that's that's uh, there's a hugely I don't remember the exact figure, but there's a hugely disproportionate number of points scored in that one minute segment versus other one minute segments because something is. Um, uh, something is uh, coming to an end. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, you know, something coming to an end, and then also, you know, the urgency <laughs> increasing at, yeah, at the absolutely. same time. And you absolutely have, right. you know, in in the book when uh, Dan, you talk about endings really having um, importance for us. They really affect our behavior in. Uh, some um, some key ways. Maybe we could just touch on those. I think there were maybe four different ways that that endings uh, affect us. Uh, sure, endings. You're exactly right. Endings have a um, endings have a that kind of multiples effect on our behavior. So one of the things they do, is, as I said before, is they energize us. So they get us to kick harder. We see the finish line. We kick harder. Uh, one of the things that endings also help us encode. That is, they help us remember, evaluate, and remember experiences. And so, um, so how experiences end disproportionately shape how we later evaluate them. Uh, endings also help us edit. That is, when we get to the end of things, we end up editing down to the essentials. You see this in the size and shape of friendship networks. And then endings also help us elevate. That given a choice, human beings prefer endings with rising sequences to declining sequences. And again, as with all these things, Julianne, what you want, you know, to use one of your favorite words, you want to be conscious of this. You want to right. be conscious of, of, of endings, that, that endings exert this kind of pull on our behavior. And a lot of, you know, a lot of times we, we move through our, our life and our projects and, and our encounters with others with not being fully awake to the temporal aspect of it. And if we are, we say, okay, endings, you know, as, you know, the simplest way to put it is okay, endings are a thing, right? You got to think of endings as a thing, and if you do, um, you can. I think you can make better decisions, design better uh, experiences for people. Yes, exactly. And one of the things I want to highlight here, Dan, just about you and the way that you help us understand these sometimes, you know, really complex but important issues like timing, <laughs> like selling. <laughs> right like what motivates us you yeah. have you have the gift the ability the the genius if you will to help it help make uh so much much research understandable and so when you well, come you. up with right right when you come up with these you know four e's you know for endings that's brilliant right it helps us understand that that indies help us energize and encode and edit and elevate. And the same thing that you did in, in Drive about the different motivators. And so I just want to honor that, uh, Dan, Thank because, you. right, because Kinda you take, right, you just take in so much research and, 
and help us make sense about it with a sense of it. And then you help us um, actually incorporate it into our lives and remember it because of the way that you write. And I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. It's nice of you to say, Julianne. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Now, we've got some news for everyone listening uh, that I think is, is significant. It's about timing, of course, in our conversation today. And that is when we're about to give somebody some bad news and some good news, what order do you think is the best? I want everybody to think about it. What would you think the best order to give someone both good news and bad news? Would the good news come first, the bad news come first? I'm gonna pitch um, it to, I'm gonna pitch it to Dan. <laughs> okay, Dan, good, good, good. Because, because I know I know the answer and I know the answer because I got it I got it wrong for most of my life. Yeah, um, most of us so did. What I typically what I typically did is give the good news first to, you know, cushion the blow a little bit. And what the research shows is that's the wrong way to do it. That that most people, if you ask them, what do you want to hear first, the good news or the bad news? People overwhelmingly want to hear the bad news first. Uh, and it goes to one of these these uh, effects of endings, which is that we prefer endings that elevate, or again, rising sequences to declining sequences. It doesn't necessarily have to be happy endings in the kind of sunny, smiley way, but we prefer things to go up at the end rather than go down. Yeah, the little little positive, uh, happy ending goes a long way. <laughs> yeah, yep. it really does. And, and so if we are part of a group or part of a team, Dan, there are some key ways that we can build these uh, these learnings about timing into them. For instance, if we're in a project and we're a team leader, then we could plan for that that kind of dip, you know, that middle midpoint. Absolutely right. Absolutely right? right. And did you see any, did you see any examples of teams that were aware of that and were actually using that to their benefit? Uh, almost none. Basically. <laughs> uh, I think it's one of those. Yeah. Uh, I think it remains, I think it remains invisible. I think this whole notion of midpoints is, um, is barely visible to us. And so what I'm hoping is that some of this research will shine a light on it and people can make better decisions as a result. Yes, because you could you could take, you know, just the beginnings, the midpoints and the endings pieces of your research, Dan, and really optimize, as you said, a team project Absolutely or an right. event, Absolutely. right, an experience for people. If you're aware of those things and we like I think what you're saying is true. We're kind of peripherally affair, you know, aware that, you know, beginnings and endings are important, but we really aren't leveraging them at the level we could. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And you found some really cool research, too, with how groups can, uh, as you say, kind of synchronize, coordinate in time. And there's some key pieces to that that uh, I would love for us to just briefly touch on. Okay. Um, yeah. What, so, so, Go ahead. Oh, no. So, so, yeah, so if you look at things like, you know, some groups have to synchronize in time. So I looked at lunch deliverers. I looked at uh, rowing teams. I looked at choral groups. And uh, there are some rules about synchronizing. And they tend to be, um, uh, you know, uh, having a clear boss for group synchronization actually is pretty, pretty important. Um, so rowers have a, rowing teams have a coxswain. Choral groups have a choral director. 
uh, having somebody nominally in charge. Uh, so a little, there's, you, you can build autonomy into the system, but you also need some degree of hierarchy. Um, it's not even so much hierarchy as like one, like a one key boss. Uh, another factor is the importance of belonging. Uh, belongingness fosters group synchronization, and group synchronization fosters belonging. This is why you see groups that synchronize well often have shared rituals, shared language, that kind of thing. And then the other thing that's, I think, really intriguing is that um, uh, uh, there's a very positive effect of group synchronization. Group synchronization makes us feel good, and it makes us do good. And when we feel good and do good, we synchronize better. Um, and and it's just, again, it's another one of those virtuous circles. So if you look at the research on choral singing, it's just out of control. I mean, it's good for our physical health. It's good for our mental health. Uh, it's good for people uh, doing good for others. Yeah, it kind of reminded me, Dan, it's, of course, of course related to uh, your research on motivation, right? And then how we yes. coordinate together is really interesting. It kind of reminded me of flocks of birds, you know, that, that they've got to have a leader, but then they sink to one uh, another. And I, I always find that fascinating. You know, the flocks of birds that have the murmurations sure. and right. It's sure. just, it's just art, isn't it? In action. Sure. Yep. So Dan, one, one really uh, quick question, but I think important. What was your favorite part of the research? The thing maybe surprised you the most or that you enjoyed the most? Um, I really uh, was 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 most taken by some of this research on synchronization, and particularly the the effect the synchronization has on what are called pro-social behaviors. So, you put kids in playing synchronous games. Afterwards, they're more likely to collaborate. They're more likely to help the teacher. They're more likely to be open to playing with kids who don't look like them. Uh, I think there's something really power. I, don't, I haven't cracked the nut on that one, but I think there, there's something very powerful and profoundly human about synchronization. Um, and I found that fascinating because it's something truly I've never, I've never thought about it, never occurred to me before. Yeah, I think that's powerful because when we're able to co-create with others uh, and we get into that rhythm, uh, like great teams do, we all kind of feel that shared flow. It's really powerful, and it, it's kind of like a high, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. In fact, there's, there's a, there is a sinker's high uh, uh, you, there's a rower's high, uh, which is actually so interesting. You have this when people row in teams, um, even though rowing is enormously painful, rowing in teams actually elevates uh, people's uh, pain thresholds. So it is wow. a form of a high. Wow. Too bad. Too bad we can't tap into that when we're running marathons, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Dan, this has just been so much fun. As always, um, I so appreciate you, the great work that you do, the the research that you break down for us that we can apply to our lives. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on Conscious Shift and sharing your wisdom. Uh, thank you, Julianne, for having me. It's been a pleasure, as always. As always. And uh, the book is When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing by Daniel Pink. Dan, thanks so much. And we'll be right back on Conscious Shift. All visionaries, sages, and thought leaders have used a pattern of thought, an archetype of creation, to think dramatically differently from everyone else. In fact, these visionaries begin with an entirely different worldview that enables them to see beyond what is to what can be. The good news is that we can adopt the same worldview 
literally a different thinking system that all world changers throughout time have used. A profound and practical and profoundly different sequence of thought for the 21st century. This universal thinking system was discovered and is now revealed in a revolutionary book called Genesis of Genius. Genesis of Genius, written by Conscious Shift host Julianne Turner, is a full-color step-by-step visual guidebook to guide you to use this success system to discover and profit from sharing your own unique genius. Genesis of Genius, Julianne Turner's life work, and the foundation of her unparalleled success, guiding thought leaders and emerging visionaries across the globe to make both significant income and world-changing impact, is already a bestseller on Amazon and is now available to you at genesisofgenius.com. And for a limited time, you will receive $180 in special bonuses, plus an exclusive quick start guide, all available to you today when you buy your copy and register at genesisofgenius.com. This is your moment. Let this be your turning point and let Genesis of Genius be your guide on your quest. Now is the time to come awake and get out of the loop of busyness and into the leap of your true greatness. The world is awaiting your brilliance. Visit genesisofgenius.com now and step into your greatness. Okay. Welcome back, everyone. This is Julianne Turner. Just closing with a really quick message to you to let you know if you would like to talk with me personally about how to tap into your genius, you can do so at geniussession.com. Would love to see you there. Uh, you will be able to uh, find a time for us to talk. And we'll see you next time on Conscious Shift. You've been listening to Conscious Shift with your host, Julianne Turner. If you're ready to make your own conscious shift to awaken the power and singular greatness already within you, Julianne is your expert coach and trusted ally, your passionate professional guide to create your highest purpose, profitability, and potential in your life, work, and world. Just go now to Julianne's website, www.creatorsguide.com, and fill in the special pop-up. You'll instantly receive free access to invaluable resources and bonuses that will guide you forward. That's www.creatorsguide.com. Just go there now and fill in the special pop-up. Now is the time to shift into your greatness. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 